0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Beat podcast. The mission of our podcast is to show the real life challenges of implementing technology in healthcare. And the podcast is sponsored by Domingos, a company that develops custom IT solutions for healthcare startups and companies. Uh, my name is Ivan Dunsky, your um, host as always. And today I'm joined by Tim Ahung. Tim is the CTO at Caribou. The company builds rewards and incentive programs for senior care companies. And previously, Tim was a co-founder of a company that was developing incontinence sensors for nursing homes. And the company was acquired by Svenska Cellulosa IB, if I pronounce it right. Also, Tim is archery tag enthusiast. Thank you for joining. How are you today?
1: Hey, I'm good. Thanks, Ivan.
0: Cool. So could you please tell us about your current company and which product services do you create? Sure.
1: My current company is called Caribou. And what we build is a recruitment and retention software for home care agencies. So I guess the high level problem we're trying to address is the growing caregiver shortage in Canada and the U.S. This was a problem prior to COVID. But as a result of COVID, this problem has become even more severe where a lot of caregivers are leaving the industry. So we set out to build a company that would hopefully address that problem, or at least maybe, you know, work on it a little bit. And our focus right now is home care, which is, you know, home care agencies will hire caregivers, and they will go into the homes of individuals who need support, typically seniors, and uh, offer various caregiving services. So what we build is uh, we build software for the home care companies that help them recruit caregivers and retain caregivers. This includes referral programs, it includes incentive programs, and also change management programs. And we kind of help them set up those programs for their for their organizations.
0: So with the help of your programs, home care companies can recruit more efficiently?
1: Yeah, they can recruit more efficiently and hopefully they can retain staff. We try to lean on referral-based recruitment. People are more, much more likely to stay at a company if they've been referred or if they're working with people who they have an existing relationship with. We also work on uh, long-term retention incentives, trying to help the home care agencies, at least give them kind of a channel to appreciate their staff and show that they recognize, you know, the impact that their staff are making. And also give them a channel to kind of give back to their staff in ways that are applicable to all of the local laws and union rules.
0: And I assume you also have some loyalty programs? The offer.
1: Yes. A, a lot of our, a lot of our customers use our, use our loyalty programs as well.
0: Cool. And uh, what role does technology play in your company?
1: Yeah. So our company, the technology that we build is primarily, well, it is a hundred percent software uh, right now. And we'll build a couple of core components of software that for the most part have to be configured to the individual operations of the healthcare organization that we're working with. So we build systems that will integrate with their employee management software and their mm-hmm. payroll processing. We'll build the actual incentive programs, which may involve pulling data from a number of other healthcare-related systems. One example, which has become really popular in the U.S. is electronic visit verification. Caregivers kind of have to clock in and clock out of visits, and then the home care agency can apply for funding and receive some funding from the government body. And that's a bit of a change management process. So we'll hook into that system and kind of create incentive programs around, around compliance. And then also we'll have a technology system that exposes the reward information to the actual employees and the caregivers so they can kind of go on like you mentioned like a loyalty program they can check their points they can see what other incentives the agency is running as well
0: so yeah i assume you have some challenges with with different integrations right yeah
1: integrations is a challenge i would say also another challenge that it's a bit unique the challenge isn't necessarily it's not like a technological R&D project. I wouldn't say we have a large amount of technology risk, but this business does have, I would say, a large amount of product risk. So our main challenge isn't overcoming a technical hurdle. It's mostly being able to adapt quickly to a changing market. Things changed drastically at the start of the pandemic and are still changing as a result of, you know, the pandemic kind of evolves and changes over time and its impact on home care has been quite substantial. So our main challenge is trying to adapt really quickly. Like, for example, this business pivoted about a year ago into this, into this business area, and we have had fairly substantial changes, I would say maybe every four months as a result of the pandemic. So on the technology mm-hmm. side, the challenge has been mostly like trying to move quickly, but also remain flexible and anticipate what changes we may encounter in the future so we don't end up with a large amount of technical debt.
0: And uh, these changes are very mostly related with changing regulations? I wouldn't say it's, it's not
1: necessarily regulatory. I think there were some, regulation changes that happened pre pandemic. For example, uh, uh, electronic visit verification became necessary in the United States. There are some pandemic related changes. For example, uploading vaccine status has, is a requirement which we've looked into, but the changes are more, I would say the most substantial changes have been market dynamics. Home care in particular is always this balancing act of having the right amount of clients, so the right amount of, let's just say, seniors who need care, and the right amount of caregivers to deliver that care. And this is a balancing act that home care agencies kind of have always had to manage. As a result of COVID, the balance has shifted heavily towards a deficiency in the number of caregivers available. Um and, uh, you know, the best ways to recruit and retain caregivers has changed over time. So it's kind of keeping an eye on those market dynamics and ensuring that we're always in the right place to deliver, to deliver value to the customers.
0: And what is, can you share, what is your way, how you check these changes and Yeah, how you keep your eye
1: on them. Yeah, this, I guess, does relate to our product development process a little bit. Because we're software, we have the luxury of being able to have very short development cycles on like Mm -hmm. a feature versus, you know, if this were a hardware business, this just wouldn't be possible. But because we are software, we tend to, we try not to plan too far in advance. You know, we'll keep it maybe one month or two months in advance. We try to keep a quite a tight loop on input that we're hearing from the market. So that could be from customer success, who's working with the home care agencies, and also sales, who's talking to new customers, and ensuring that, you know, we have our ear to the ground on what problems they're facing, what they're asking for, or if anything shifts on their end in terms of like, uh, you know, let's just say there's some shift in market dynamics, and I don't know, a new source of funding opens up for caregivers, that would be an opportunity that we would want to react very quickly on to be able to help them, I don't know, collect or deliver that new funding model. Uh, And,
0: yeah, can you elaborate a little bit more on that, like on how mm -hmm. specifically you get that feedback, like, okay, let's imagine we have sales or customer support especially, so how do they gather that feedback, like do they have a backlog, how do they make priorities on, on that, like how do they say to a product team what is important, what is not, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, so I guess we have, uh, our customer success team does have regular touch points with the customers. And uh, for the large ones, they're meeting with them on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, at least during the initial phases of the project. And maybe it tapers off to monthly later on. And during those meetings, they'll kind of try to get an input on like what what other challenges they're facing that they think, that they think we could contribute to. Uh, or if there's any, if they have any specific like things that they would like, like if they If it's not just a problem for them, if they've already come up with a solution, they'll kind of collect that input. And then we do have, essentially it's like a channel for customer success and operations to communicate feedback to the product team. It's in the form of like periodic meetings where we'll collect that input and kind of synthesize it into a series of features or product initiatives. Similarly with sales, this one is a bit less, it's not as formally structured, but When sales is out there, if they'll hear about, let's say, a competitor with a new feature or when they're trying to close a deal and try to understand, you know, how we can solve the customer's problems. If there's a problem that has been raised that we can't currently solve, what we've been doing actually is we'll have someone from product, usually myself, will join the sales call and do kind of a needs discovery with the customer before the deal is closed to determine if, you know, can we solve this problem? And if we were to develop a solution to this problem, would it be in line with our strategy? Our company strategy, uh, and if it is, then that kind of gets uh, rolled in as part of the as part of the sales process, where we will actually start the development of that feature for that one customer, close the deal, roll it out with them, and then, assuming we did our homework correctly, that product change or that feature would be also applicable to other customers. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? Yes. So,
0: so basically, you are making decisions on how to transform these requests to into features, right? Yeah. Yeah, got it. So that is, do you think that is possible that somebody else from your team, like for example, product manager can do that uh, instead of you?
1: Yep. Yeah. And I think that's the, I think the goal, at least with the current market dynamic, there are not a lot of competitors in the space or the competitors that do exist kind of have prerequisites. It's like existing large players in the space who are building, these types of incentive programs as an add-on to their existing features. So the way things are set up right now is a customer may come up with a problem and there's not a lot of good solutions out there. So in this circumstance, I think it is appropriate for like product managers to be involved very early on in the sales cycle. And the customers are very willing to have someone work on this problem with them. So normally in a sales situation like this, I don't think the customers would be as willing to go through the needs discovery process like for example before a deal has been closed but because these problems that are arising are very new and you know the market hasn't reacted to it there's not a lot of competitors which is you know like if some dynamic shifted and then the problem has only existed for two weeks you know it's quite reasonable that there would be no competitors and they have a high they have a high demand for a solution they're they're definitely motivated to work on a solution with us so Yeah, I think the goal would be in this in this current climate, uh, product managers could be involved in the sales cycle quite early on.
0: Yeah, cool. And maybe you can share your vision, how you can educate product managers to understand and capture what is and differentiate what is important, what is not. Because as you a CTO, you understand the whole like you understand both worlds, technical and the customer worlds. How do you see how you can educate product managers who can not, not see as, as good as you?
1: Yeah, I think something that we have to be careful of is not being, not offering just like consultancy services to solve a problem that is specific to this one healthcare organization. Because like our fee structure isn't set up to do that. And honestly, like, you know, they could go and hire some consulting firm to do that. It probably wouldn't be worth it unless the healthcare organization was very, very large. So I think like, a product manager would probably, who is, you know, focused on like one area of the product or is focused on, you know, driving some success metric, I think would probably without any external input would probably be the best person to solve that problem for that agency. But I think the one element of external input that a product manager might need outside of their team is determining whether or not a solution to a problem is in line with the company's strategy. So that I think comes from, which is why it's important that like, that like I attend a number of these meetings Mm -hmm. with potential customers is to get an idea of, you know, where the market is going and what types of features would be on or off roadmap. And then, you know, I think, I guess the advice to a product manager would be ensuring that they have access to that information when making a decision about which problems to solve versus which problems to maybe say, Hey. That's a little bit you know, too far out of our wheelhouse. And uh, perhaps there's a different partner who would be better at solving that problem than us. Yes. Yeah.
0: So uh, then to run this possible solution with you?
1: Yeah, ideally they wouldn't. I mean, we haven't reached a point where that's like a problem for us, but ideally they would be able to make that decision on their own. But then there would be some type of feedback process for like a confirmation after the fact, because I wouldn't like to have a... Like, I wouldn't want to be a blocker in in the process of them deciding, okay, let's go and build it, right? Because especially if this is like pre-closing the deal, right? So ideally, they would be able to, like, they would have this framework, they'd have this kind of structure to review either while the meeting's happening or right after the meeting to determine whether or not, okay, this is on strategy, here are next steps, we're going to go for it, versus having to have this kind of checkpoint that involves me as like a now critical path person on this on the process which involves closing a deal so yeah ideally they can make that decision independently i think that would be the i don't i wouldn't say i have a full solution for that but i think that that's what i would want to strive for yeah Yeah.
0: understood and could you tell us about your current engineering team sure
1: so our current engineering team is it's in-house it is a fully remote in-house team though we have like two people in the philippines and then people kind of spread out across canada which is pretty cool We did start with a third party, third party app and back end development company and kind of around the time or shortly before we pivoted, we switched to an internal team.
0: Why did you make that uh, decision?
1: Yeah, that decision was made mostly because I think number one, like the volume of development was ramping up. And number two, we kind of realized that like how quickly we'd have to move to properly capitalize on this market opportunity and uh, when the product felt like the product vision felt a little bit more secure in the sense that like we knew that okay if we hired these individuals and built out the internal team we our path wouldn't change enough that that team would not be the right solution going forward whereas before you know we weren't quite sure and the product vision kept changing and it was very it was like in a very iterative stage of the business um once things kind of settled then we decided to make the switch to internal
0: uh, did it work well for you
1: it's worked well i wouldn't s- uh, yeah so I, i'm very happy with it
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah i'm happy with it i think a large part of that is because like our current engineering team is really great uh we had some really strong references. And uh, yeah, like our lead engineer is amazing. Our like first engineer hire is amazing. Our designer was a referral. So it's been really good. I think also uh, but also like I really liked our our third party software development company from before, like I'd worked with them before, which is why they were providing services to this company initially. Are they from Canada? Yes, they're from Canada as well. Actually from Toronto specifically. The time when I worked with them prior being kind of co-located in the same city was important. Less important now as a result of work remote probably, but yeah, so I I've, I've been happy with the the internal team decision and I think like it based on where we are right now and the challenges we're facing, I think it does make sense for us to have an internal team, but also like and perhaps this is maybe better suited for a different question, but I've been seeing like a lot of companies using third-party developers and being quite successful with that, mostly in response to like rising software engineer salaries. In Toronto, it's kind of exploded. I think you know, obviously in San Francisco it's been high for a while, but other cities didn't experience the same salary increase until perhaps the last i don't know 3 years or so so i've also seen i've seen a lot of companies be successful using using third party services for quite a while actually so
0: yeah. and how was the transition from the third party to internal Yeah, that
1: was, uh, it wasn't so hard, I think, because the teams were relatively small, like it was initially we had hired, it was myself and one, our lead engineer. And then on the third party side, I think they had maybe two individuals on, on the engineering team. So we were able to migrate relatively seamlessly where we kind of ran both processes in parallel for a little bit. It was maybe like two sprints worth of development and then transitioned over to our internal process.
0: Yeah, oh, okay. um,
1: yeah, and and we did retain some of the resources from the third party from the third party supplier for a little while and kind of ran them both in parallel. Um, the transition was relatively smooth. I think that it being a small team definitely made it easier. If it were a larger team, what I probably would have wanted to do would run both teams in parallel for a bit longer and then kind of slowly taper mm-hmm. off the third party team just to ensure, and maintain maybe some of the people who had more experience with that code base, kind of keep them on a retainer for a little bit and have them participate in perhaps like sprint and ticket planning and kind of just be available if something happened. Maybe they're doing PR reviews or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. I think it would have been a lengthier process if the team was larger, but because it was so small, it was relatively smooth.
0: Yeah, cool. It sounds good. Sounds reasonable approach. And what are our current obstacles you face in the development
1: Yeah, with this, with this business, there's not a whole lot of challenges that I would say are where, you know, the question is, can the technology do it, or we have to overcome some massive technical hurdle, and that's going to take like six months of R&D to do it. That's not our challenge right now. Our challenge is trying to stay on top of market trends, which means number one, keeping our ears to the ground and keeping, you know, being very close to the customers and having an idea of, you know, what's happening in the market. uh, and then being able to very quickly react to that and translate those insights into products or features. And uh, the tech- the technology challenge is, number one is, I guess it's at a high level is speed. Like that would be the main metric would be how quickly we can iterate and how quickly we can adapt. But with that comes, you know, how do we avoid technical debt and uh, how do we avoid, you know, building, building products and features that the market doesn't need a month from now. Uh, so we've, I mean, A large portion of the credit is from our lead engineer who does a really good job of managing technical debt. And also we've built a number of tools that allow us to kind of experiment with features or products, which is like propped up by like operations. So it's like kind of like it is manual on our end, but it looks like a fully formed automated product to the customer and to the end users and kind of allows us to run these experiments because things change so quickly. We can, you know, spin up one of these experiments and maybe it takes a little bit of development and a moderate amount of manual effort to set up, but allows us to test, test the feature really quickly. And then if it doesn't work or if things change and that feature becomes you know, not important one or two months from now, we can either decommission it or if it becomes important, then we can build a robust feature. Yeah, I would say those are the two things that we're, we're challenged with right now on the technology side.
0: Cool. Let's talk about your previous company. Uh, so I assume that there is a more... It was more like technical, technically difficult to build a product. And yeah, if you can elaborate more on that experience and how you approach the development, how you build the development team.
1: Then... Yeah, sure. So the previous company was called Sensorsure and we were building a sensor for nursing homes. So the sensor was designed to attach to an adult incontinence product. Just a little bit of background in nursing homes in Canada and the U S. I think just a slight majority of the residents of those nursing homes are incontinent, so they can't fully control when they go to the bathroom. And as a result, they have to wear a brief or an incontinence product or an adult diaper. And the standard process in most of North America is to periodically check the briefs to see if they're wet. And if they're wet, they change the brief for a dry one. In some places, it's supposed to be every two hours, which includes overnight and as you can imagine being woken up every two hours to have someone you know pull your pants down and check your brief would be very disruptive so what we thought um, would help is a sensor that could attach to the outside of the brief and determine if the brief was wet or not wet and this would allow for two things one is if the brief was dry then the caregivers don't have to wake people up every couple of hours you know if the brief is dry you can perhaps just go in, check up on the on the resident, make sure they're okay, but you don't have to turn the lights on. You don't have to pull their pants down and check on the brief. So you can get uh, improved quality of sleep. And the second value that we thought would come from the sensor is if an individual has been wet for a while, caregivers could decide to prioritize changing that individual. You know, if someone is wet for maybe two hours or so, you know, they would, they would potentially have been changed earlier than that. So they wouldn't have to Kind of be exposed to moisture for such a long period of time which results in improved skin quality yeah so the technology involved in this project i would say this project was definitely less focused on like changing market trends and was more focused on solving this problem of can we detect the presence of urine in a brief from the outside of the brief reliably and that was like our big technical hurdle uh the, the the product involved a couple components. It had a sensor which attached to the brief. That sensor had to talk to we had these like wireless internet gateways that we installed in the nursing home. It had to talk to those wireless gateways. Those wireless gateways sends their data to a server.
0: We have Bluetooth?
1: No, we used we did use Bluetooth for some of the versions. And then at one point we decided to use a technology called LoRa, which is a low frequency long-range communication protocol. I don't know how popular it is these days, but we had made that decision prior to the most recent version of Bluetooth, the long-range Bluetooth. So had we been like working on the product a year or two later, we probably would have decided to use like the long-range version of Bluetooth, which I think came out, it came out like halfway through one of our later development cycles. So yeah, it would have been great if that was available at the time. But maybe that's what they're using now on the project. I don't know. It would probably be the right decision, just because it's so popular and so accessible. But yeah, it was like an IoT device kind of connected to a server. And then we also had a mobile app that the caregivers would use to determine, you know, the status of the briefs of the residents.
0: And maybe you also had some web panel for uh, facility administrators.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had an administrator dashboard that kind of showed them high-level analytics. And also it would, yeah, escalate notifications to that platform. Usually in nursing homes, you would have the majority of staff, especially overnight, are caregivers. They're going in, they're checking up on residents. But usually nursing homes will have at least one nurse on staff at all times. I think in Canada, they have to, who would be able to access the administrator dashboard.
0: And how do you approach the development of the device and the, the whole technology? Yeah. That?
1: Yes, this was a very different process from our current business. With that business, we did some initial validation studies to confirm that, you know, were people willing to pay for this product specifically, were nursing homes willing to pay for this product and how much mm. were they willing to pay? And our initial sensor was, it was much. It was technically a lot simpler. It was just a conductive sensor that would go inside of the brief. And, you know, detecting through conduction, the presence of urine is quite easy because for the most part, urine is not distilled water. So it's conductive. We would have these disposable sensors that went on the inside of the brief and would detect when they were saturated. We did our very first validation pilot with this system, that you know, was very MVP. It kind of worked, but also the technology hurdle was much lower because conductivity was pretty reliable. And then we found out that nursing homes were not willing to pay enough in order to justify the cost of a disposable sensor. Um, So at that point, we kind of realized, okay, either we have to come up with a way to drastically reduce the cost of the sensor, the cost per use of the sensor, or this business is not going to work. So the path we went down was to try to make the sensor reusable. And the way to do that was to put the sensor on the outside. So the journey of this company, I guess, involved a kind of back and forth series of iterations where we would do uh, like research and development type iterations on trying to build a better sensor that could remotely detect the presence of urine. And then once we kind of got to a certain point where we felt that the sensor was going to be good enough to add value, we would then build enough of a product around that sensor to run a clinical trial and test in a real nursing home and then assess, you know, is this accuracy good enough? Is, you know, is the product usable? Is it durable? Can it be cleaned? What other issues are coming out of the clinical trial? And then we would kind of take the results of that, go back, do a series of R&D iterations on trying to solve some of these problems, improve accuracy, improve durability, make it easier to apply and remove from the brief, and then go back into a clinical trial. And we kind of went back and forth between these two high-level challenges, like the product challenge, which I think exists with almost every business, and then the technology R&D challenge, which was kind of unique to this business.
0: Cool. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool story. And could you tell about the market research you made? Like, how how did you make it? Did you hire a specific company to do that? Or what was the approach?
1: No, that was just, the, it was brute force. I, I did not participate in this, but I did see it happen. So at the time, our ceo and our cpo went and this was like like we were all we were all fairly early on in our careers at this time we didn't have like established networks and senior care so mm-hmm. it was just like brute force like cold calling at one point we set up this road trip and we met with it had to have been at least like 20 different nursing homes throughout the us and we went on this road trip and we we kind of met with them and we talked through their their challenges around incontinence and pitch them on the idea to try and find nursing homes who were interested and gauge interest in the market. Yeah, a lot of cold calling to get that set up, which is, you know, kudos to the CEO and CPO who set that up. That was huge for our business. And then once we had enough interested partners, we built a very rough MVP.
0: But wait, when you talked with them, how did you validate that they were willing to pay and how much?
1: Yeah, this was a balancing act between initially we, we had to validate that this was a problem for them. And usually like we would go in and we would ask them, you know, like what are some of your your biggest operational challenges? And the common responses are incontinence management is like always at the top. Feeding is also is also up there. It was at the time, which was, you know, way before COVID. I bet if we were to go around and ask them now, like staff shortages would probably be number one. But at the time, like incontinence management and feeding were like two big ones. So then we would decide to focus on incontinence management and specifically what the challenges were. And if they were in a place where they kind of felt like incontinence management was a challenge and they felt like, you know, maybe they were um, using too many briefs, maybe residents had poor sleep quality, families were complaining about residents being like residents kind of sitting in saturated briefs for a really long time. We kind of went down that line of questioning to validate whether or not the problem existed and then if that was the case then we could pitch them on the solution and say hey here's what we're thinking of a solution would you be willing to pilot it would you be willing to pay for it and the problem that we encountered on our on the road trip and with our early validation was that nursing homes were unable to really determine how much they were willing to pay for it because nothing like this existed before and there were no like white papers there was no research on you know, how this results in cost savings, or does this actually result in improved skin quality, that's really hard to prove or improve sleep quality, which is even harder to prove. But uh, there was no existing research. So it was really hard to actually get a number in those initial meetings. So in order to do that, we had to start running clinical trials to try to get, you know, we couldn't get like, we will reduce incontinence associated dermatitis by, I don't know, 20%. Mm-hmm. There was no way we were going to get that. But we could get like, you know, we can reduce the amount of time residents spend sitting in a saturated brief by 50%. And we can reduce unnecessary sleep interruptions also by 50%. And then we found that as a result so of getting sorry,
0: with those numbers,
1: we th- that was from our clinical trials. Yeah. We would like, we would measure, we'd do like a baseline and we would like monitor passively. Mm-hmm. And then we would in, uh, do an intervention and then kind of observe the effects. Um, and we kind of had to do that. And before we could even get willingness to pay, which was, it was very expensive but uh, we didn't really have any other options because the the data wasn't wasn't out there so we had to, we mm-hmm. had to make
0: it yeah uh, it's a kind of a way how to find a blue ocean
1: yeah and and in a sense we did get a little bit lucky because it is possible that like there were a lot of things where like it, it is possible that for example a sensor couldn't be built that could detect urine inside the brief reliably and it's possible that like even if we could do that just from a workflow perspective like that it adds no value. And we actually found, like one example is originally the product was meant to be used 24-7 around the clock. We actually found that during the daytime, the product added no value because the caregivers had no time to change. So giving them information about who was, which residents were sitting in wet briefs and which residents were sitting in dry briefs didn't impact their decision to actually change the briefs. Like the existing workflow couldn't make use of that information. So we eventually then just decided, okay, the product will only be used during the nighttime because that's the only time it adds value. So mm-hmm. it was It was also possible that that was the case around the clock and the product would add no value. And we kind of had to go in. At the time, we didn't anticipate these risks, but I think these risks did exist. And we kind of had to go in and, like, run the trials and figure it out, like, despite those risks potentially existing, which is, I mean, I don't know. I think I think it was a combination of, like, you know, we did get a bit lucky uh, a couple times there.
0: Yeah. Luck is definitely a factor in all the entrepreneurial. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so how did you develop the device?
1: So yeah, the device, we went through, I think it was maybe four product iterations. And uh, yeah, it involved like, it was a very multidisciplinary team. We had electronics engineering, we had industrial design, mechanical engineering, firmware.
0: And um, they were part of the founding team?
1: No. So the founding team was just CEO, CPO, and myself, CTO. And internal team, we did hire a verification engineer who did like product verification and also helped out with R&D. And then we we also had a medical device consultant who had experience building similar sensors to the sensor that we ended up using for this product. He wasn't full-time internal. He was a third-party external consultant, but he was with us for the entire journey. And then other than that, it was all external engineering resources. Yeah. Electrical engineer, firmware, mechanical, industrial design, app development, server development.
0: They were all like different vendors.
1: Yeah. It was all different vendors as well. We did get some quotes from like a turnkey development shop that did everything. And the, I think the way that we wanted to do development didn't really fit with the way that a lot of these turnkey shops do development, where I think that they're typical like customer profile is someone who has an idea of the product that they want and has a relatively high degree of validation and they're going to build you a like a really good polished finished product that's going to be good for you know you could transition it to manufacturing if your clinicals go well you can get all your certifications which is not what we needed at that time we needed to be a little bit scrappy we needed something that was going to You know, meet the minimum requirements for like safety and functionality so that we could actually run the trial in like a safe way and get good data out of it. But we didn't need any more than that. Yeah. So that's why we opted to go with a a mix of individual contractors and third party contractors. And yeah, I will say though, one thing, one thing though to note, which is important because normally that, like, just as I'm saying it, it sounds like a nightmare. Like, it sounds like it's putting a lot of burden on the internal team to manage all of these different vendors, which, It is. So I I will put a caveat Yeah, And maybe that's not the right approach for most businesses because it's so much work, but something that was unique about this situation is a lot of the engineering, a lot of the engineers that we hired had worked before together at various companies. So like we had, we'd gotten a lot of referrals to kind of construct this team. And, you know, the electronics engineer had worked with the mechanical engineer who'd worked the firmware Mm -hmm. engineer. They'd all worked together at companies in the past, and then they had to kind of split off and created their own companies which with their own individual specializations so they had an existing working relationship they kind of knew where the down like responsibility boundaries were so that definitely made management a lot easier yeah without that pre-existing dynamic i don't know i don't know mm-hmm. if it would have been the right choice to be honest
0: so you've you got one referral and then they re- refer you, you to other folks yeah.
1: Oh, yeah yeah like who have you worked with before who's like so this person let's say the electronics engineer is like okay who have you worked with before who does mechanical and then who have you worked with before who does firmware who you know is good and stuff like that and then we kind of assembled the team that way
0: and that there's luck as well right?
1: yeah for sure because yeah. that could have gone poorly It it was a lot it was a lot of internal overhead to manage i think multiple third party multiple third parties but <clears> it could have been easily like i don't know like five times as much work if they hadn't worked together before and hadn't had that existing relationship
0: time and money as well yeah yeah uh cool and did you also switch to the internal team when you built that product
1: we did not that product stayed external for until we sold the company
0: you did the company for two years
1: yeah yeah two years prior prior to selling it and uh, yeah the team remained external the whole time and i think that for that business it was the right decision We had this because we had this kind of awkward back and forth between R&D cycles, building an MVP, running a clinical trial, and then like processing the feedback. We had um, periods of time where we needed a lot of engineering support and periods of time where we didn't need much engineering support. And using external services allowed us to kind of scale our engineering team up and down based on our needs. I think it was probably about maybe a third of the time we were in clinical trials and didn't require much engineering support and it mm-hmm. saved us a lot of cost being able to have that flexibility. That was one thing and an, another thing is because the areas of expertise were so diverse, I don't think we I don't think we necessarily needed to hire let's say like an IoT expert full time, but by using a third party software development company, you know, they could bring in someone on their team who had IoT experience for maybe I don't know, 15 hours a week. And then the rest of the development could be, you know, maybe a junior developer or someone who's more cost-effective. So we were able to kind of benefit from that because we did have such diverse requirements on the technical side. Yeah. And for those two reasons, I think it was the right, it was definitely the right decision to go with external for the majority of the the technical areas.
0: Cool. And it seems that you have kind of two, two options of how startups can organize their teams. With internal team, with third party team, completely with third party vendors. So what are your vision on, like in what in what ways startups sh- should choose an internal way or third party way?
1: Yeah, I think I can think of a couple examples from like my previous business, censorure. I think something that was important to keep internal was the r and d. Like a large portion of the value of our company when we sold it was the IP portfolio that we developed. And most of the R&D was being completed by myself, uh, our verification engineer, who was full-time, and our medical device consultant, who was, he was external, but he was, you know, he had a retainer and was with us the whole time. So I think that was important to keep internal because if, you know, that was controlled by another business, it would have been, I think, difficult for us to really, like, add value post-acquisition when we're really fleshing out that IP portfolio. So I would say that, that that is probably important to keep internal. On the external side, a couple of, I, I could see like justifications for going external. A big one would be, yeah, if you if you anticipate fluctuating demands, which could be because you have kind of, you know, a long clinical trial cycle or you have a long validation cycle, like in a hardware business. Uh, but also if, and I've, I've been seeing this happen more frequently now, is like if, if a company is very early stage and trying to experiment with different product offerings and trying to like iterate really quickly to find product market fit. I could totally see an external partner making sense in that circumstance. And a lot of people were turning to that, like as a result of software development salaries becoming really high, at least in Toronto uh, where, yeah, you can go with an external shop, do your iteration really quickly. And then it allows you to, it allows you to like adapt, I think faster than if you had hired internal employees because it's possible that the expertise that you need changes and, you know, once you've built a team, it's kind of like it's difficult to change your area of expertise.
0: You need to do what you have.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could like restructure your whole team or if your company's growing, you can just like grow in the direction you need to go, but you also face a lot of like, I don't know, like conflict, like Trying to make that decision right because you're, you're geared up for one thing it's it's really hard to deviate from that path but if you have a if you have a third party you know with an understanding that things might change and they have a whole bunch of areas of expertise internally it allows you to kind of shift around and be really flexible to where the product needs to go so yeah i think i think if you if you anticipate that and you're going to be iterating really quickly i could totally see that being like the preferred option it also allows you to i feel like get started a little bit faster If you perhaps maybe a full-time, maybe you don't need a full-time engineer. You can go third-party, start really small. It's not even a full-time person. Maybe it's 20 hours a week or something for your initial validation and then builds from there. And in the early stages of a company, you know, if you're, I don't know, having discovery calls with a customer and then you want to test something out and then maybe it doesn't work and then you put it on pause and you come back and test something else out once you have another customer, you know, the speed The difference of like a couple of weeks, even one week, I think makes a big difference if you're trying to iterate really quickly. And if you have a third party on deck, you can spin up and spin down, I think a bit faster than trying to hire hire a full-time, which kind of commits you to a path a little bit.
0: And what kind of tips can you give to product companies to hire a third-party engineering team?
1: For myself, I think something that's been very important is hiring a team with aligned values in my industry at least in senior care like senior care technology isn't the most popular for startups and it's typically like a relatively underfunded industry i would say so i find that the people working in this industry tend to have reasons why they want to be in this industry there's something motivating about being in this industry for them and i think that 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 was huge for us um for both businesses, and to have
0: to have some kind of internal motivation, work specifically in
1: that. Yeah, yeah, and I think there are two reasons why that's important. Number one is for me, I find that more motivating, and I know that a number of people on my teams have found that motivating, which is when they're working with someone who's also mission driven. That could that this applies for internal employees and and third parties. And then number two, especially when managing, when we were in that scenario where we had all these different third party companies, and trying to manage all of them, you know. At some point, you're going to have conflicts between individuals and someone's going to say, hey, it's this person messed up this thing. And that's why it's not working. And then that person says, hey, this person messed up this thing. And that's why it's not working. And uh, when people are all aligned for the same mission, it's really easy to bring everyone back to like a central goal. Like you have a common place you can come back to and say, hey, you know, this is the goal. We're trying to improve uh, incontinence associated dermatitis or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not about pointing fingers. It's about like, what are the solutions from where we are right now to where we need to be? It just made those types of discussions really easy to have when you know that everyone has that common ground.
0: So your role as a kind of product owner to get everybody together to, fo- to follow one direction, one mission, rather than concentrate on some internal conflicts?
1: Yeah. And it was, it was really helpful ensuring that you know are, when everyone had the same common motivation, it made that job much easier.
0: Cool. Yeah, and we are coming to the end of the interview, and my last question would be in this series would be, what advice can you give to those who want to become a good skilled engineering manager?
1: Yeah, I think uh, something that's always been really important for me. I was kind of like thrown into that role as a result of the first company, censorure. And something that was very important was having a good mentor, our medical device consultant, uh, kind of ensured that like we took all the right steps. And that, you know, that our decision process was the right decision process and that I was doing the right things to manage this team. And uh, yeah, I think that's number one is having having a, a mentor who you know has the skills, but is also there to kind of support you through the process. That I would say is the like the single most important, the single most important thing from my journey.
0: Cool. Yeah. And we are coming to the end of interview and I would like to end this one as always with the light exercise called rapid fire round i will ask you several questions and uh, you can give answers whatever you come up with
1: all right sure
0: Um, yeah so so what is the latest movie that impressed you the most
1: the latest movie i watched this short that's a series of short films called love death and robots and then there's this one short film called jabaro which it really impressed me because the creators just like they created, I don't know, I've never seen anything like it. It is a little bit uncomfortable to watch and it is like, like you don't want to watch it with children, but it was, they combined like 3D animation and motion capture and also I think some 2D animation and created like a really unique like visual experience. It's a short film, it's like five minutes long.
0: Yeah, I saw that as well. So yeah, the most impression for you was in visual effects, right?
1: Yeah, and the, yeah, and the storytelling, I felt like the storytelling was really good and they had like dancers. I don't know if it was motion capture or how they did it, but the dancing just seemed like really realistic, but it was also looked like it was 3d animated. So yeah, I like that one.
0: Yeah. I, as far as I remember that was without any words.
1: Yes. Yeah. No words. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What is the location that impressed you the most?
1: Oh, location. Yeah. Somewhere that I've been recently. Yeah. So I don't know if this is 100%. It was public transit in Japan. So I mean, I live in Toronto and we have a public transit system. Um, But what I found in the public transit system in Japan was like, when I was riding the train there, it felt like everyone on the train was working together to make the public transit run smoothly. Whereas in Toronto, it's like every person for themselves, like people are rushing to get off, rushing to get in. Whereas in, in Japan, I was on this train and it was like, Before the train stopped, people had taken their bags over the overhead storage and they were ready to go. And as soon as the doors opened, people waiting to come on were off to the sides, people in the train like got out and the people waiting to come in, got in. It was super quick, it was super efficient. It was just like a- One Yeah, exactly. It's like everyone was operating like on the same wavelength and like working together. And it actually like felt kind of, it felt kind of good. Like you're like part of this team, like making the public transit run smoothly. (laughs) And then I come back to Toronto, and it's like, oh man! Like everyone is rushing, people are charging, trying to get into the doors. It's not as not as fun. It's
0: quite it's quite odd for individualistic society, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what is the one piece of advice you can you would give to your twenty years old self?
1: Yeah, this one is it's hard because I like it's something I don't regret, but I would never want to experience again, which was with my first business. I really, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably struggle with this is like, I really associated my self worth with the business. I think it's like a common entrepreneur problem. And I wasn't happy for a large portion of that journey. I think I've like overcome that. And I've learned to do a better job of separating things. But uh, yeah, I wasn't happy. So I would say that that would probably be something that I would tell my past self, but also like, I don't regret it, because I think I grew a lot through that experience. And like, I've, you know, partially become who I am today as a result of having gone through that. So yeah, it'd be something around, around that, I think.
0: Do you mean that uh, keep that balance that you like the, the business as a separate entity that is not you, right?
1: So. Yeah. Yeah. I think some degree of like association with self-worth is always going to happen with a business like that. Like it's takes up so much of your time. I think just naturally that'll happen, but I think having like a, at least a diverse set of interests and areas where I am spending time and spending focus. So it's not 100% business, just allows you to, you know, have other things that can occupy your mind and other things that can occupy your focus other than the business. Because for me, it was like a singular focus, which was not very good for my, like, mental health.
0: Yeah, understood. Thank you, team. Thank you for sharing a lot of insights about building development teams and sharing your diverse experience of, of how you did it. Yeah, thank you for sharing so much with us. Before we finish, what is the best way to get in touch with you if somebody will want?
1: Oh, yeah, I guess you could message me on LinkedIn if anyone yeah. has any questions about anything, if there's any way that they think I could help. Yeah, you could find me on LinkedIn. At, uh, I guess you could search my name, Timothy Ahong. I don't think there's any other Timothy Ahongs on LinkedIn. so.
0: Yeah, I, th- yeah, I, I am confident that, that that would recognize you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners. And we will catch up in next episodes.
1: All right. Thanks, Evan.